The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. What do you do when your television show is built around a big, above-the-title star actor, and that actor is unavailable? Let's revisit The Incredible Hulk. Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The creature is wanted for a murder he didn't commit. David Banner is believed to be dead. And he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. In the history of TV, there have been a few times that producers have been thrown a curveball regarding actor availability. Even in shows where that actor is the lead and therefore, one would have thought, contractually obliged to appear. The creative ways producers deal with these problems often shows why they are paid the big bucks. For example, in the 1950s TV western Maverick, in which James Garner played Brett Maverick, gambler, con man and bon vivant, but also a generally amiable sort who'd help out if trouble arose, as long as he didn't risk his own neck in the process. The breakneck production of Maverick started to slow down a tad as the workload mounted up, Especially as, back then, US television seasons had upwards of 30 shows per year. Take that, Netflix. Garner was obviously struggling to keep up. He was, after all, the title character, and was required in almost every scene. The producer's solution was as ingenious as it was simple. Introduce Maverick brother, Bart Maverick, played by Jack Kelly. Alternate the stars, make the characters pretty similar to one another, just call them Maverick in the scripts, and away we go. Genius. Another example is The Equalizer, the 1980s vigilante drama starring Edward Woodward. Woodward filmed a few episodes of season three of The Equalizer immediately after completing season two. This was to give the network a few episodes in the bank, allowing Woodward time to head back to the UK to film a TV miniseries, codename Kirill. However, Woodward's filming schedule, his bad eating habits and his smoking all contributed to a heart attack. Fortunately, Woodward made a full recovery. 
but was told by his doctor in no uncertain terms to cut down the working hours, the eating and the smoking. This left the equaliser's producers in a quandary. Woodward top-lined the equaliser. There were no other regular cast members to pick up the slack. There were, however, a number of supporting and recurring cast who could, if required, carry a show or two. To that end, McCall, Woodward's character, is bundled into a van at the start of a two-part story called Mission McCall, and it's up to the supporting cast and guest star Robert Mitchum to find him. Woodward appears only in filmed inserts and in the final scene of part two, a scene whereby Woodward's half of said scene was filmed weeks after Mitchum's half. I don't think they ever actually met each other. It's a pretty elegant solution to the problem and allowed Woodward to carry on making the show, even with his reduced workload. Sometimes it's not as serious as a heart attack. David Hasselhoff and Tom Selleck both skip out of episodes of their respective shows, Knight Rider and Magnum P.I., and in both instances the producers elected to make the episodes backdoor pilots for other shows. Neither went to a series. An episode of The Dukes of Hazard doesn't feature John Scheider at all for some reason, and all his lines are given to Catherine Back's Daisy Duke, who, for one episode only, gets to do all the action with Tom Wopat's Luke Duke. One wishes they'd done this more often, as Back was more than up to the challenge. Mr T is missing for an episode of the A-Team, sounds an obligatory cameo. The producers get around that one by having Dwight Schultz as Murdoch dress like and mimic T's character, B.A., throughout the episode, a move that is both funny and clever. In these latter instances, though, the producers just moved the lines to another cast member or created a backdoor pilot where extraneous cast, who weren't normally part of the show, picked up the slack. When The Incredible Hulk had to produce an episode without Bill Bixby, they had a major problem. Bixby was the show. His character, Dr David Banner, was the only one to appear in the majority of the episode, and the other regular characters on the show couldn't work with Bixby. The other actors in the opening credits were Lou Ferrigno, who played the Hulk, and Jack Colvin, who played nosy investigative reporter Jack McGee. The Hulk was Banner, albeit in roided-out form, so an episode couldn't really be built around him without explaining where Banner was. McGee was searching for Banner, but could never actually meet him or the show was over. However, the problem remained. Bixby would not be available to them for one week due to court proceedings over the custody of his child. US network television does not shut down. So the producer, in this case Kenneth Johnson, and writers Karen Harris and Jill Sherman had to come up with a solution. Quickly. One obvious solution was a clip show. God-awful example of cheap US telly, whereby the actors either fall into a coma, undergo a memory machine, or just sit around saying, hey, remember when this happened? Before clips from prior episodes are played to a bored and annoyed audience who quickly reach for the remote control. The nadir of this was Buck Rogers in the 25th century, which had two clip shows in one season. To add insult to injury, it was the first season. So there weren't that many episodes to choose from. And the audience hadn't seen them that long ago. War of the Worlds pulled exactly the same trick in its first season. And that was greeted about as well as the announcement that Zack Snyder is releasing another cut of Justice League. But this one will be eight hours long. Amazingly, one could argue 
Johnson and Co. did go down the route of the clip show, but once again, with more than a little bit of imagination. So that wasn't all we got. So, what did we get? Arguably, one of the best episodes of the run, delving into the mind of Jack McGee and shedding light on his relentless obsession with the creature only he calls the Hulk. Here's the teaser. As long as you're on my payroll, no matter what you hear about the Hulk, you don't touch it. You are obsessed with this story to the exclusion of all else. I intend to prove to you that the Hulk does exist. I've seen that thing. There's this guy I work with. He is the Hulk. That's a cannily edited teaser, that, to hide the fact Bixby's nowhere to be seen in the episode. I mentioned that Johnson and his writers did essentially create a clip show, but their way of doing it was far more creative than Aaron Spelling, who literally had both Starsky and Hutch and Charlie's Angels sit around reminiscing, although sadly not together. The episode opens with a very creative use of previously filmed footage. The second season opener, a two-hour episode called Married, saw David Banner using regression therapy to confront the Hulk and try to deal with his problem. In this regression session, both Bixby and Ferrigno shared the screen together for the first time, as David Banner tries to keep the Hulk caged within himself, a metaphorical attempt in real life being actualised in his mind. This episode, entitled Proof Positive, utilises footage and some outtakes from that scene to show Jack McGee dreaming of the Hulk, a manifestation of McGee's obsession. For fans of Joe Harnell's music, this is also a great opportunity to hear the full Hulk out music without dialogue and with only a few sound effects, as the dream sequence plays out almost silently. The shooting of McGee's half of the scene is very well done, given his moments were filmed over a year after the other footage. More Harnell music follows for the interstitial credits, the Stop Susan Williams theme originally used in Johnson's series Cliffhangers. For the first time, we see the paper McGee works for, the National Register, and his oft-mentioned editor, Mark. McGee has blown off an important interview, ostensibly to follow a lead on the Hulk, and the new publisher, Patricia Steinhauer, played by Caroline Smith, isn't best impressed. The name Steinhauer is a series in-gag, referencing line producer Robert Bennett Steinhauer. Patricia wants to make the National Register into more than a tabloid rag, obsessed with, as David put it in the pilot episode, reporting murder, rape, horoscopes, UFOs and Farrah Fawcett. This could be bad news for Jack's continuing story about the Hulk. We're changing the tone of the Register. We're taking out the trash. No more fad diets, no more predictions, no more flying saucers unless they're spotted by the Air Force. We're going hard news all the way. Terrific. What? But, Jack, I don't think you realize... Now, you'll still work on some of your current assignments. This senator's secretary, for example. Great story. I'd really like to nail this guy. Uh, actually, I, I've got a couple of very strong leads on the Hulk right now. I'd like to stick with those. Mr. McGee, I thought you agreed. We're dropping the Hulk. Oh, that's ridiculous. Only hard news. The Hulk is hard news. The Hulk is no news. He's pure fiction. Now, wrong. I've seen him. I've seen what he can do. Come on, Mr. McGee. Look, uh, 
Baby, I think that you're making a... Don't patronize me, Mr. McGee. The Hulk is out. My doctor... Uh, right, I, I... You're making a mistake. Drop it, Mr. McGee. I have made my decision. Look, Miss Steinhauer, I, I think if you'd just hear me out... I said drop it. What's funny about this clip that you don't really get in audio is that as Patricia is telling McGee to drop the story, McGee sees the Hulk destroy her table and his visions, like this one, will reoccur throughout the episode. Ken Johnson deserves a lot of credit for his approach to women in television. At a time of jiggle TV, Johnson's productions excelled in portraying intelligent women in roles not normally seen. So during the Hulk's run, women were given scientist, doctor, and here, editorial positions, normally reserved for men. Johnson kept this up, having already created the Bionic Woman, and creating substantial parts for women in later shows, Alien Nation and V. McGee goes to the roof to muse on his situation, and believing he's about to commit suicide, Patricia allows McGee a chance to prove that the Hulk does actually exist. Colvin was a good actor, who was often given a thankless role in the Hulk, but Johnson clearly knew what he had, and allowed Colvin a few chances to shine over the duration of the show. McGee here quickly cottons onto Patricia, thinking he's there to commit suicide, and he milks the moment, manipulating her to get what he wants. It's very well played by Colvin. Patricia allows him to show her the evidence, and makes a pretty decent stab at being scully to his Mulder, essentially debunking his stories credibly. As McGee himself admits, the story does sound ridiculous when said out loud. This is where the clip show element is well integrated into the story. McGee, in giving his evidence to Patricia, tells her of his encounters with the Hulk, seen via clips from the pilot movie, Stop the Presses, The Final Round, and the pivotal two-part story, Mystery Man, amongst other episodes. It's interesting to get into McGee's motives. He thinks he's doing the world a service by pursuing the Hulk. It's a physical aspect of the creature that's almost beyond belief. Almost? I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. Perfectly normal man, this John Doe. Except that under certain circumstances, which I am still trying to figure out, he goes through this metamorphosis. I realized why the creature was able to just disappear with no trace. He becomes a man and then just melts into the crowd. This phenomenon, whatever it is that makes him a, a freak, it's my responsibility as a journalist to expose it to the public and the scientific community. He has no right to deny the world the knowledge of what he becomes. It's a fascinating look into the mind of the character. McGee is no longer a foil, a cardboard caricature. He's now got a real motivation for what he's doing. The Hulk is his whale, and he's Ahab. And it's cost him a lot. The Hulk has ruined his life, arguably just as much as it has David Banner. I gave up everything in my life outside of this story. There was a girl... And, and when she left me, I just barely noticed. I haven't voted in two years. A damn thing runs my life. You couldn't possibly understand. 
The most impressive part of this episode so far is that we are 22 minutes in, nearly half the runtime without commercials, and we haven't noticed that Banner hasn't been in the show, other than in scenes from other episodes. Appearances of the Hulk have likewise been mostly stock footage or sporadically spread through the show. And again, we've not cared. Because The Incredible Hulk was a show about characters, not effects or gimmicks. It's why it holds up nearly 45 years later. Yes, the special effects are rudimentary by today's standards. The plot's often formulaic, but the character work, the actual thing that brings us back week after week, that still resonates. Even the smallest characters in this show are well-drawn, from the reporter who is determined to stitch McGee up, to the plant worker who sells David out for the reward money, the motivations are easily understandable. McGee is the alcoholic desperate for the next drink, the drug addict craving the next fix. Oh, McGee fights it, he paces and he pauses and he ponders and he tries to follow orders to not follow up on the latest sighting. And he's not irredeemable. He knows his flaws. He knows he's an addict. Does he have what it takes to beat it? Yeah, hello. Mr. McGee, my name is Chuck Slosser. I've seen that thing. That Hulk. Uh, yeah, go on. Well, it's weird. You're not going to believe this, but uh, there's this guy I work with. He is the Hulk. Have you told anybody else about this? I called your newspaper, but they kind of gave me the runaround. Then I remembered the reward, so I figured I'd give you a try. Good. Uh, this guy you work with, could you describe him? Uh, slender, medium height, uh, brown hair. Hell, I can take you right to him. What do you say? You interested? You bet I am. Possibly not. To her credit, Patricia doesn't just dismiss McGee, she goes with him as he finally snaps and follows his compulsion to find the Hulk. Carolyn Smith was very good in this episode, being sympathetic and a credible boss. She believes McGee is a good reporter, wasting his time on this ridiculous story about a giant green man. Looking at IMDb, it seems that Hollywood didn't really know what to do with Smith, a common story for a lot of actresses, and after doing the 80s TV rounds, appearing in the likes of Erwolf, Book Rogers and Scarecrow and Mrs. King, she seems to have dropped out of acting. The conclusion sees McGee and Patricia locate Banner, and, in keeping with the rest of the show, the chase is entirely from their point of view, which cleverly means we avoid seeing Banner's face. The Hulk out is well handled. We see Banner only from behind. He falls over, hiding his face, because presumably this is Bixby's double. The smelting plant he's working in sears his flesh, so of course a startling metamorphosis occurs. The Hulk predictably escapes, but Patricia is now firmly a convert. This is a decidedly off-concept episode. None of the usual Hulk tropes are present. David doesn't wander into a new town, encounter someone who needs help, Hulk out twice, leave at the end, his bottomless brown bag slung over his shoulder. By focusing on McGee, the episode not only gives us a different kind of episode, but it also sheds light on McGee as a character, fleshing him out and making him more human. McGee's relationship with Patricia makes for interesting viewing. Colvin has a few years on Smith, but the relationship plays out well, even fairly handled, and the end hints at romance. Or, at the very least, Patricia helping McGee find the Hulk. 
It would have been nice to see her again, but this was not to be. Continuity in The Incredible Hulk was better than most shows of the era, but still not airtight. Patricia Steinhauer was never seen again. Jack Colvin died in 2005, aged 71. It seems a shame that Jack McGee was his most famous role, as he was a celebrated stage actor and appeared in over 100 hours of television, including the obligatory guest appearances in the popular TV shows of the day, such as Harry O, Tarzan, Kojak and the Rockford Files. He notched up four different characters across episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman, likely where he met Ken Johnson. He was best known in the industry as an acting teacher. The episode doesn't even conclude in its normal fashion. We don't see David hitchhiking to the Johannel plinky plinky piano music of sadness. Instead, the episode leaves us with McGee and Pat off to another sighting of the Hulk. The theme music is present and correct over the end titles to tell us that this is an episode of the Hulk, but it doesn't end in its normal fashion adding to the off-concept nature of the entire show. As with all long-running shows of this time period, it's the off-brand episodes that stick in the memory. Kate's being eaten alive by toxic waste in Knight Rider is a far more intriguing episode than him going undercover at a stunt show for the umpteenth time. Steve Austin fighting Bigfoot is better than him pretending to be a lumberjack, and Mulder and Scully appearing in Cops is far more interesting than yet another po-faced episode about black goo. These episodes stick out purely because they are different. And it's probably why the formulaic nature of the show meant that these episodes did seem more important, more memorable, as time went on. And this is a memorable episode. It's also slightly offbeat, but it's all the better for it. We missed Bixby. We hope he's back next week, but for one week only, it was nice to learn what made Mr. McGee tick. The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? To cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. Alright, you want to do the prisoner? Alright then. The village people. An exploration of the prison with Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lamb. Coming soon wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, should we check it on the email sack? Seems like there's quite a lot this time, which is awfully nice. Always nice to get uh, messages from people. Rob McCarthy's emailed in. Wait, From Russia With Love is the second movie? I presume this is a reference to the Pretty Reckless episode I did, which was one of my favourites and nobody had anything to say about. Which is how these things go. Yes, From Russia With Love is the second episode. You thought Goldfunger was? No, you're wrong. Thinking about it, Cadmus is very useful if you mean to kill Superman. 
Maybe that was planned longer than we thought. It is entirely possible. Uh, I don't know that for certain, but it certainly seems a logical thought. Uh, Marvel rejected one of my best stories because the Punisher tortured a woman. He tortured a woman in this line. Well, he did it off panel. You never actually saw what was going on. So maybe that was the reasoning. Also, there were American radical groups in the 70s that used bombs, but warned people first. Maybe that's the thought. Well, they never mentioned that in the story. So that's supposition on our part. Headcanon, I believe it's called nowadays. Uh, Keith Merson's emailed in. Hello, Keith. Hello, Andy. It's been a while since I have emailed, but I wanted to tell you again how much I enjoy your podcasts and how I delight in seeing them available on my podcatcher app. Or available on all podcatcher apps. Whatever they may be. It's been a hell of a run recently of excellent episodes, such as... Well, thank you for saying that, first of all. The Man from Uncle. This was part of the spy-fi craze that I missed out on. Probably because you're not old enough, Keith. But keep looking for episodes showing as I have enjoyed the leads in other things. David McCallum in The Invisible Man was a bit of a treat, as I remember it. I will keep my eye out. They're all available on archive.org. Just saying. Uh, I watched... Very recently, reasonably, I say recently, a couple of weeks ago, the pilot for The Invisible Man, the 1975, I think it was, uh, pilot movie that David McCallum starred in, with a view to possibly doing an episode about it. And then I followed it up with a couple of episodes and swiftly lost interest. The pilot is really good. The pilot has Jackie Cooper, uh, Perry White from the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, in as his boss. And he's a lot more hard-edged. It's very much the story of an idealistic scientist who has created something that Perry White, Jackie Cooper, wants to use for military purposes. And McCallum's idealistic scientist is against this. And the pilot movie has a very definite tone of mistrust of authority to it. Uh, It being the early 1970s, obviously. Uh, there's also a heavy sexual angle to it, you know, really, for an action-adventure show of the time. McCallum's, McCallum's character was married, and they were clearly um, a couple that enjoyed each other. And I thought, oh, this, this could be quite interesting. Because I do remember watching it, I saw it on BBC One. when it. Um, I think I saw it when it originally aired, but I know it was repeated a number of times throughout the 80s and 90s. Because for, for some reason, it was very popular here, The Invisible Man, possibly because of David McCallum. Uh, the BBC, I looked on as part of my research for what would have been the show that now will never be. I did have a look on the Genome Project and it aired twice. They aired the entire show twice in one year. I mean, I know there's only 13 episodes before it was cancelled, but that, that's that's quite unprecedented to air that twice. But the series that followed, as with a lot of shows of that era, anything even remotely interesting or during or different from the pilot episode, that got filed off before it went to series and Jackie Cooper was canned for the series. His boss is played by a different actor in the series that follows and he's a lot more avuncular, just like what happened with Oscar Goldman and Oliver Spencer in The Six Million Dollar Man. He's a lot more friendly. A deal is struck that they will try and find a way to cure McCallum's invisibility problem in exchange for him going out on a few missions for them. You know, so it just becomes every other action adventure show of the era that you've ever watched and other than the lead actors david mccallum and melinda fee who did their best it rapidly came another show from the 70s you know the six million dollar man was doing this stuff every week and so was the bionic woman and they were kind of almost doing it a little bit better uh 
So as good as McCallum was, that that has become a show that will never be. But the pilot was good. The pilot's worth watching. Amazing Spider-Man, Keith continues. So glad you are carrying on with your Spidey coverage. A lot of these are what I can consider classic Spidey, with the formula well established and the cast of characters each adding to the greater tapestry of Peter's life, which is continuously interrupted by his responsibilities as Spider-Man. This is helped by Ross Andrew, who sits in a nice halfway point between John Romita and Gil Kane, in that it's clearly the same house style, but it was a good storyteller and at times just looks cool. Looking forward to the next chapter. And it's interesting you should bring that up because I am in a bit of a quandary at the minute about that next chapter. Obviously, I've got one episode left wrapping up the Len Wein run and then the sky's the limit, really, and I don't really know where to go. I've done all the Stan Lee stuff on this show. I covered a lot of Jerry Conway stuff with Michael and my son on A-Kids Comics. We did all the Clone Saga. We did the death of Gwen and a couple of sporadic issues here and there. So I don't know if I really want to go back and redo all that stuff that I've done. I've done, I will have done all the Lemween's run. I've already done all the Marv Wolfman's run. I've already done Denny O'Neill's run. So the problem with all this quantum leaping around, do I now just jump straight to Roger Stern? And my problem with doing the Roger Stern stuff, and it's a nice problem to have, but my problem is that would just largely be me gushing because I consider Roger Stern's run to be the second better run in the history of the character. And then I've thought, well, all right, should I do GM DiMatteis's and Sal Buscema's Spectacular Spider-Man run? Should I do anything with Spectacular Spider-Man? Because I've not really covered any of that. And I reread the first two or three masterworks as a see if any ideas sprung out of that. It's really not very good. And Marvel team-ups only good twice. The John Byrne, Chris Claremont run and the GM DiMatteis and Kerry Gamble run. So, you know. I'm still see. I'm still pondering. Maybe I'll leap forward to Eric Larson and see what happens there. Still pondering. Still thinking. Keith continues. Superman in space. In a previous episode, you read an email from someone reading Action Comics Annual Two as an introduction to the post-crisis Cyberman. Cyberman. Superman. Be funny if he was a Cyberman. It mirrored my own introduction to the character. The page where Superman identifies himself and declares he will not kill. Zack Snyder never read that comic. It's still one of my favourite panels of all time. I'm currently working through my Crisis to Crisis era Superman comics, and it was never as consistently well written as it was back then. That mix of character, action and plot is something more writers should aspire to. Yeah, that was, it was, Burns stuff was good. Burn leaving made the book better. And from him leaving all the way through to the death and return, that book fired on all cylinders. And I agree with you. I think when you look back on it now, it was never quite as good after that creative team started splitting up. You know, after Jerry Ordway went his own way and Roger Stern went his own way. And you get that they want to go on and do other stuff. They don't want to write Superman all the time. But it was never as good as it was in that era. But, you know... Max Headroom. This was something of an oddity, as I recall. Max himself was a bit ubiquitous at the time, but I do remember there being an original series that had Matt Frewer, always an actor who adds quality, and W. Morgan Shepherd. Thank you for clarifying that I didn't imagine it. Well, that's one of the reasons I focused on that show. Everyone remembered Max Headroom, or everyone who was there at the time remembered Max Headroom. No one knows who he is nowadays. Um, but they remember the chat show, and they remember the Coke commercials, and they remember him like you being the media personality it seems to be forgotten that there was a pretty decent science fiction show at the heart of all that melee but you know 
it only lasted 12 episodes, so people are probably forgiven 13 episodes for not remembering it. In closing, thank you for providing a voice of reason in the midst of a trying few years, both in the world and especially personally. It means more than I can express. Well, you're very welcome. We can all only live by the dictates of our conscience. I'm going to go before there's another episode. Oh, damn, too late. Yeah, this one. Hey, Keith Mason, be me so you don't have to. Well, thank you, Keith. That was a nice, that was a nice email. Thank you for emailing it. Finally, before we knock it on the head for this time, you'll get a nice little half hour episode though. Jack Bond has emailed back. No, there wasn't an antelope flu blakeout. Blakeout? Is that an episode of Blake 7? There wasn't an antelope flu breakout. It was swine flu. This was one of the first flus. Is that spelling right? Flus? Flus? My computer isn't making any of these words make sense. It was one of the first flus. And he love that he spells it differently every time. I'd heard identified to its animal source. It was also more fatal than most. The US government wanted everyone to get vaccinated and was putting out warnings. I was just a kid, but I thought the warnings were hampered by having one of the slightly silly animal names, much like the scurriness of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, is blunted by calling it mad cow disease. The effort was also hampered by government bungling in the vaccine rollout. It was thought they'd done the ultimate bungle when some people were reported to have died after getting the shot, which put others off getting the shot. You could probably cite this as an example of the comic getting political, but I doubt anybody ever will. No, but it's interesting, isn't it, Jack, that the more things change. Anyway, that was a reference to the Spider-Man Dr. Faustus antelope flu story I did a couple of weeks ago. Thanks for the continuing non-index indexing of Spider-Man. Your pal, the Jackalope. Well, you are very welcome, Jack. I'm, I'm glad that you are enjoying my non-index index show. I was always a bit concerned about quantum leaping around like that. Excuse me. I don't think my voice has, has returned to what it was after COVID. But everyone else doesn't seem to hear any difference. But in my head, I now sound a lot different than I used to do. But um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. I'm always a bit concerned if people were, would follow my quantum leaping around. Because I know comic fans, by and large, are, are a, an orderly lot. They like things to be in order. And it would irritate them to cover issue 200 in one episode and then go all the way back to issue 90. But I'm not like that. I like bouncing around in space and time and seeing everything everywhere all at once and all that stuff. So hopefully you all come along on the journey with it. And if you want to, you know, you can always go back and listen to him in any order you want. It's the beauty of it. Hey kids, comics at virginmedia.com is the email address. You can drop me a line if you so wish. I'll be back next time with a new episode of this tripe, whatever this tripe ends up being. Thank you for joining me. It's all going to be okay. See you all real soon. Goodbye.